in this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden, um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. That was Senator Kamala Harris during the Democratic presidential primaries, addressing her then opponent and now running mate, Vice President Joe Biden. Harris is talking about busing, a type of desegregation in which black and brown children are bused to primarily white schools on the other side of town. Harris was bused as a child. But Senator Harris herself has been the subject of significant criticism for her own record. For some, she isn't tough enough. For others, she's a former prosecutor in a world where we hear calls to defund the police. I reject a notion that says that if you try and fix a system from the inside, then you are somehow suspect. And I'm proud of the work I did. There is an important role for us to play, those of us who have understood and experienced the bias and the unfairness, for us to be on the inside where the decisions are being made. Today, in 2020, she's very, very close to reaching the place where decisions are made. From Thousand Oaks Elementary School to Howard University to San Francisco District Attorney to the Senate. Today, the little girl who was bust could be on the road to the White House. Who is Kamala Harris? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is? The podcast from Now This, where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. In 1962, in Berkeley, California, two students from opposite sides of the world, Jamaica and India, nations both victim to British imperialism, met at a study group. But not just any study group. It was the Afro-American Association, which, according to the New York Times, would, quote, help build the discipline of black studies, introduce the holiday of Kwanzaa, and establish the Black Panther Party. Shyamala Gopalan, one of the students, came to America so she could study biochemistry. At home in India, she had, as a young woman, been directed toward another kind of science. Home science. Gopalan told SF Weekly in 2003, I never came to stay. It's the old story. I fell in love with a guy. We got married. Pretty soon, kids came. That guy was Donald J. Harris, a PhD student from Jamaica who would go on to become a professor of economics at Stanford. One of their children, born October 20th, 1964, is Kamala Harris. Here's Tanya Christian, who followed Kamala Harris during her 2020 campaign for president. So what she's told me about her childhood is that she spent a lot of time at marches, that her parents were very much on the front lines, marching for justice. Yeah, remember, Kamala's parents' study group would help establish the Black Panthers, 
Berkeley is basically the home of the intellectual left in the 1960s. Her mother obviously was very instrumental in her upbringing because she was mainly raised by her mother. But while her parents were still together, they were often on the scene with their two children at marches, marching for equality and justice. Harris's parents divorced when she was seven. So she and her sister Maya were mostly raised by their mother. Kamala and Maya grew up in the Flatlands, which is the historically black part of Berkeley. That's when Harris became a part of the busing program, which was a court-ordered effort to integrate public schools nationally, from Boston to Berkeley. Kamala Harris goes to kindergarten and elementary school at Thousand Oaks Elementary. My first grade teacher at Thousand Oaks Elementary School, Mrs. Frances Wilson, God rest her soul, attended my law school graduation. I would not be standing here today as district attorney of San Francisco, having been elected the first woman to be district attorney in San Francisco, and the first African-American woman to be elected district attorney in the state of California, were it not, were it not for what I received in my education. Kamala would leave the Bay when she was 12. Her mother got a job in Montreal, and she'd go to high school in Canada. It was an interesting time in Montreal. French-speaking Quebec almost became independent in 1980, which was the year before Harris graduated. But who wants to be in Canada? It's just boring. Harris headed to Washington, D.C., fulfilling a childhood dream, Howard University. Howard University is a historically black university uh, located in Washington, D.C. And when I spoke to her about the importance of Howard University and how that shaped her, she told me that it was really an aunt who went to Howard and it's a place that she always dreamed of going as a child. Harris told The Washington Post, quote, one of the people in my life who had a great deal of influence on me was my Auntie Chris, and she went to Howard University and pledged AKA. Like her parents, Harris was invested in social justice. At Howard, she protested South African apartheid almost every weekend. She was one of those kids who did all the activities. Howard is also where the politician begins to emerge. Harris was on the debate team and ran for an elected office for the first time freshman class representative to the Liberal Arts Student Council. She won. She did mention that she was, she felt that Howard University was very competitive. And so being able to win at Howard told her that she could really win anywhere. And I think that was that confidence. Howard gave her that confidence to, to go out and, and seek elected office time and time again. Harris is super type A. Because she's in D.C., which is like where the government is, she has tons of internships at the Federal Trade Commission, the National Archives, and the U.S. Bureau of Engraving and Printing, which is probably actually really interesting, but also could not be. If you Google it now, the domain name is literally moneyfactory.gov. Just like in the 1960s when her parents attended marches and politically active study groups, Harris is in the mix in D.C. in the 80s, when more than 70% of D.C. was black. There's even a song about it, Chocolate City by Parliament. Anyway, it was also a rough time in the city. According to the New York Times, quote, 
At Howard, during Harris's tenure, students recalled drug markets operating openly near campus and drug use in common areas. They also recall the violent police response that ended up being called the War on Drugs. Harris has said she became a prosecutor partly because of seeing those conditions in her early college years, end quote. But there's more. Here's Harris in 2010 after the release of her book, Smart on Crime. We grew up pretty much um, surrounded full-time by adults who spent their time marching and shouting um, about this thing called justice. So for me, I, I often tell this story, but growing up, the heroes of that movement in, in my mind and in many minds were, were the architects of the civil rights movement. And they, of course, were the lawyers. So it was Charles Hamilton Houston and Constance Baker Motley and Thurgood Marshall who were doing the very important work of taking the skill of this great profession of law and translating the passion in the streets to the courtrooms of our country and doing the important work there of reminding folks who unfortunately needed to be reminded of that great promise that we articulated in 1776, which of course is that we are all and should be treated as equals. So I decided um, I wanted to be a lawyer at a very young age. Here's Tanya Christian. When I spoke to her in Iowa, her thing was she wanted to change the system. She wanted to change the criminal justice system. And she felt her way of doing that is by going to law school and becoming a prosecutor because she wanted to change the system from the inside. And that's how she planned to do it. After she graduates with a degree in political science and economics, it's back to California for law school. Here she is again at that 2010 book talk. And it was in law school that I made the decision about what I wanted to do with my career. And I'll share with you, I was very excited about it. And I asked my family to gather around to share with them my decision. And so they all came around the living room and said, okay, Kamala, what have you decided you're going to do in your pursuit and fight for justice? And I said, well, I've decided I'm going to be a prosecutor. <laughs> and you're all laughing because you probably have a sense of who my family is. In 1990, fresh out of law school, Harris is hired as deputy district attorney for Alameda County, California. We don't have the exact date she was hired, but she could have been as young as 25. Alameda County is Oakland, next door to Berkeley, where Harris grew up. It was the tough-on-crime era, and violent crime rates peaked in 1992 in Oakland. As a prosecutor, Harris is carrying out the policy that delivers what some people call mass incarceration. On the other hand, she's almost certainly one of the only women of color in these rooms who is working for the state. At some point, Harris meets Willie Brown. Here's Marisa Lagos, a correspondent for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, who co-hosts the podcast Political Breakdown. Willie Brown is the former San Francisco mayor, but before that, he was the longest serving speaker of the state assembly, I think, in California history. He was uh, known, I think he might have coined this himself, as the Ayatollah of the assembly. He's basically the person who term limits were written for in California. He is 
the ultimate political animal, a really interesting person. I mean, his grandparents were slaves. He moved to San Francisco from Texas without a penny in his pocket and really rose to be one of the most influential politicians, certainly San Francisco as a city, but I think California has ever seen. And I think, you know, he represents a different era of politicians. Some would say more of a pay to play kind of approach, but he definitely wielded a lot of power for many years up in Sacramento and continues to be a big player behind the scenes, especially in San Francisco. And, you know, he named Gavin Newsom to his first city commission. He named Kamala Harris to her first city commission. He named our now Mayor Lyndon Breed to her first city commission. He has been a, a key player in really fostering some of these, what again, I'll describe as San Francisco moderates, not Democratic moderates, but these often more business-friendly Democrats who have been, I think, more interested in playing within the system than kind of blowing it up from the outside, like you see on, on the progressive wing of the party. It's controversial, and Harris has entirely rejected her connection to Willie Brown on numerous occasions. Nevertheless, I'm going to read you a piece of Dana Goodyear's Harris profile from The New Yorker. Goodyear is quoting a so-called local observer. Quote, Willie is a bit of a finishing school for some of the people in his orbit. Most people don't quite know 100% how to dress for the first Pacific Heights cocktail party they get invited to. The notion that he helped polish somebody like Kamala a little more, I don't think that is sexist, end quote. Pacific Heights is the fancy neighborhood in San Francisco. It's where the donor class lives in mansions with views of the bay. Nancy Pelosi lives there too, and so does Diane Feinstein. Here's Marisa Lagos. So that group, which the Gettys, the Susie Tompkins Buells, um, who are still around and are big Democratic donors, are kind of part of that same, I would say, power structure that Willie Brown, Nancy Pelosi, Diane Feinstein all came out of. Yeah, these are people who are living in places like Pacific Heights or down on the peninsula in, in, in mansions, but they're really part of the democratic base. And I think that they really saw a potential in Kamala Harris. Again, I think partly it was sort of an agreement among that whole group of folks, including the political consultants and the donors and the, the sitting politicians and people within the party that she was somebody to watch, somebody that had a lot of potential, who did sit in this interesting space, being a woman of color, but also a woman of color in law enforcement. Kamala Harris is, early on, seen as somebody who has potential. In the early 1990s, Willie Brown would appoint her to the Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board and later the California Medical Assistance Commission, important positions for a rising star who's building political power. But regardless of Willie Brown... Kamala Harris was on her way up. I think that the Willie Brown connection has actually been made way too much. Like, there's been way too much made of that. Kamala Harris did briefly date Willie Brown, and I think that that's been something that her opponents have used for years to kind of try to undermine her credibility as a politician. Willie Brown has dated a lot of people, literally. I'm sure you could make an insanely long list. And incidentally, he's still married, but they're okay with this. It's a very weird setup. <laughs> but to me, a lot of the kind of attempts to continue to connect them really smack of sexism, because as I said, he was so instrumental in so many other people's careers. I don't think the fact that they dated is, is the reason that he ultimately has supported her. And I think it's not something we would have seen 
if the situation were reversed and she was a man and, and the person in power was a woman, um, you know, certainly she's benefited from that relationship as well as many others, but I don't see it. I mean, I think Kamala Harris has stood on her own two feet her entire career. She is a brilliant politician. She is a smart lawyer. She has had her eye on the prize of higher office all along. And I personally kind of think she would have gotten where she is with or without Willie Brown. It's not the relationship that's important, but the circles Harris is traveling in. Donors, institutionalists, and the Bay Area political and economic elite. In 1998, Harris is hired as head of the, quote, career criminal division of the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. After two years on the job, she'd resign. It's not clear why she left, but she'd allegedly clashed with the DA and his second-in-command over a ballot measure that was designed to make it easier for prosecutors to try kids in adult court. Harris was reportedly against making it easier to try kids as adults. But she isn't unemployed for long. Harris quits on a Monday, and by Friday, she's appointed Deputy City Attorney with the Child and Family Services Team, where she'd stay for several years. In 2003, she'd run for San Francisco District Attorney against the old white guy who was her former boss, Terrence Hallinan, and another guy, Bill Fazio. Harris campaigned as a competent progressive, compassionate but smart on crime, someone who would return accountability to the office and professionalize it. She found space in the middle between a progressive and a moderate, and she won 56 to 44 percent. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, she was the most popular candidate the top vote-getter among those running for citywide office. Here's Harris in 2010 reflecting on that race. So there I was, um, the first and early days of that campaign, and I was sitting in a campaign office, and we got our first poll results. I was very eager, um, a little nervous, but, but excited. And then I read that piece of paper, and it told me that we were at a very healthy six points in the polls. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, yes, is six in 100. And, um, <laughs> and, and my two male opponents were, were significantly ahead of me at that point. And one of them, of course, was the incumbent and my former boss. And I was told that I had no chance. The other thing I was told was that the goals that I had set as a candidate could not be accomplished. I was told well, if this is such a big problem, why hasn't someone done something about it before? Or if this is such a great idea, why hasn't something happened before, right? The idea being, of course, that all great things that can be done have been done. <laughs> and so I didn't listen. I didn't listen, um, although I'll tell you at the beginning, especially sitting in that room looking at those poll numbers that first time, I felt really small. And so I stood for office anyway, and then guess what? Well, you know the story. We won. <laughs> and what I was thinking about in those early days and have continued to think about in my career as a prosecutor is that, you know, I, I did not run because I wanted to be the first woman. I ran because I believed I could do the job better. Kamala Harris is San Francisco District Attorney. We're going to look at how she made the jump from San Francisco's top cop to California's top cop after this. Today, Kamala Harris could be a few months away from the White House. But in 2003, she had just won a tough race 
to become San Francisco District Attorney. Harris was the first woman to get the DA job and the first black district attorney in the entire state. Here's KQED's Marisa Lagos. Kamala Harris really emerged in San Francisco in the early 2000s. She was a prosecutor who had clearly, I think, had her eye on some more ambitious things than just being aligned district attorney. But I think Kamala Harris cut her teeth in what I would say, as somebody who's covered this town for the last 15 years, kind of the best place to get your sense of rough and tumble real politics at the local level of possibly anywhere in the United States. San Franciscans care about local politics. They pay attention more than I think even most big cities you see that happening. And I think the fact that San Francisco is a relatively small city under a million people actually helps with some of this because it really gives you an ability when you run for office here to do retail politics, to understand the kind of ins and outs. And it's just a smaller universe with fewer factions than you find in a city like LA or maybe New York. After a few months in office, Harris got a tough case. Here's Marisa Lagos. Isaac Espinosa was a very well-liked young police officer in San Francisco. I think he was doing a plainclothes patrol in the Bayview District when somebody who was known to police as a gang member opened fire and killed him. And it, and it really shook the city. It had been quite a while since an officer had died in the line of duty. It was a very violent and, and, and horrific crime. And almost immediately, Kamala Harris came out and announced she would not seek the death penalty against his alleged killer. When Kamala Harris ran for San Francisco district attorney, she promised never to seek the death penalty. Kamala Harris kept that promise. At the funeral, Dianne Feinstein stood up in a Catholic church full of police officers and called for the death penalty to be pursued. And Kamala Harris was sitting there, I think, with some other local politicians looking pretty mortified at the whole thing. Um, And it really did, I mean, color, I think, the way a lot of police officers looked at her for a very long time. Eight years later, when she was running for attorney general, her opponent got essentially every single law enforcement endorsement. From her perspective, it was, I think, a really difficult moment. It was something, you know, it was a hard time for the city. And and she, as the chief prosecutor, was going to need to work with the police for many years. And I, and I think that it, it was... The beginning of a really difficult relationship between her and and some in the rank and file that she didn't really redeem for almost a decade. This was in April 2004, and Kamala Harris had been in office less than six months. I think that for a lot of voters in San Francisco, that was an episode where they came to really view her in a positive light because she had run on an anti-death penalty platform and it showed that she would stick to her guns. And so I think even though there's like this national narrative that that was a big mistake, um, you know, from, from my conversations over the years with people close to her, it was a decision that they feel like maybe they could have handled the announcement of differently. Like maybe they should have waited longer. Um, they announced that they weren't going to do it, you know, before the, the police officer had even had his funeral. But I, I think that that was a real moment um, for me watching her and just for her career that, that kind of put her on this bigger stage and, and gave her a broader profile. So what did Harris accomplish as district attorney? I mean, I think first and foremost, she really is credited with kind of professionalizing that office. When she came in, I think most of the DAs didn't even have email addresses yet. It was 
from a lot of accounts, kind of a hot mess in that office. I wouldn't say that she came in and entirely upended the criminal justice system like we're seeing happen in places like Chicago or Philadelphia now. To me, the most interesting kind of lasting impact of that time Again, isn't like, oh, she stopped charging people with crimes altogether and San Francisco became this bastion of like criminal justice reform. That took many more years. I would say though that she really brought in a group of people who have helped drive the criminal justice reform conversation in California in the decade or so that followed her time as district attorney. And that includes people like Latifah Simon, who's now on the BART Board of Directors, our transit agency, but is also the head of a foundation and is advising the governor on criminal justice and policing reform. People like Lenore Anderson, who literally wrote Proposition 47, one of our most sweeping criminal justice changes, which really decriminalized most drug offenses and nonviolent offenses and allowed people to go back and clear their records from decades past. I can go down the list, but to me, like, that's one of the more interesting parts of her legacy there is that she really helped kind of bring in a different set of folks who maybe wouldn't have thought about working for a prosecutor before. I think she did help set the stage for some of the reforms that ultimately, ironically, later on, she didn't take positions on, but the people who she had hired and kind of brought up helped push and create. Um, and, and I think that that's been another hallmark of, of really her political time, which is her cautiousness and her sort of unwillingness to, to stick her neck out, especially when she was a DA and attorney general. Harris is re-elected San Francisco district attorney in 2007. And in 2008, she announces she's running for California attorney general. Here's Oprah. With a 90% conviction rate, superstar prosecutor Kamala Harris made history when she was elected California's first African-American female district attorney. Law enforcement has such a direct impact on the most vulnerable people in the community. And I wanted to be at the table when the decisions are being made. District Attorney Harris believes it is her duty to mentor young women who dream of following in her footsteps. My mother was a very strong influence in my life. Always said, uh, Kamala, you may be the first to do many things, but make sure you're not the last. Harris's opponent in the race was another district attorney, the L.A. district attorney, and a Republican, Steve Cooley. This is from a 2010 debate. The attorney general makes about $150,000 a year, uh, which is less than half what you made last year as district attorney of L.A. County. Right. If you win November's election, do you plan to double dip by taking both a pension and your salary as attorney general? Yes, I do. I earned it. 38 years of public service, um, I definitely earned uh, whatever pension rights I have, uh, and I will certainly rely upon that uh, to uh, supplement the very low, incredibly low salary that's paid to the state attorney general. Anything you'd like to add to that? Go for it, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you get there, you'll want yours too. <laughs> You've earned it. There's no the question. There's no question. Here's Marisa Lagos. Sue Cooley was the district attorney in Los Angeles, kind of very typical law and order, you know, white dude um, came up through the ranks down there. And he really capitalized on a lot of the anger that was still existed from the Espinosa case and from what some police saw as her not being hard enough on crime um, and essentially got every law enforcement endorsement 
um, around. I mean, but this is at a time when California is becoming more and more blue, and it's been years since we've seen uh, a Republican win statewide. Cooley, I, I think it was interesting. It, it definitely taught me a lot about how hard it is to cover prosecutors because they both had a lot of statistics they like to throw at the other person about conviction rates and charging decisions and it was really hard to fact check and so for me it was like a, it was a it was a challenging thing to cover in the sense that it's really hard to to assess from the outside the efficacy of any prosecutor in a lot of ways like you can look at the big cases and you might be able to look at some of the data but like it's almost impossible to really crunch like, oh, have you been a more effective DA than this person? But Harris got the backing of the Democratic Party, the Democratic establishment. She worked her butt off. And on election night, my newspaper, I was at the Chronicle at the time, San Francisco Chronicle, actually published a story with my byline on it, which I objected to, I will say, but they declared Cooley the winner. I mean, it was that close. The election took I think almost a month to fully call. And she essentially eked out a win. And it was, it was this really interesting moment of her kind of positioning herself, not as a super crazy lefty, you know, that like defund the police, the things we would be hearing now, but as somebody who was gonna bring a kind of more pragmatic approach to this, wasn't just gonna throw the book at everybody. And I think it worked and she worked really hard after that campaign to rebuild her relationship with law enforcement. I think she did an okay job. But the truth of the matter is the attorney general in California does have a lot of power and does prosecute some criminal cases, but a lot of the cases they do are actually more civil than criminal. So in hindsight, it's kind of funny thinking back on that election and thinking how much the two of them sparred over their history, throwing people in jail or offering diversion when that's not really the role of an AG at a statewide level. After she won the race, Politico published a piece in which she is referred to as the anti-Palin, referring to regular Palin, Sarah Palin. To that, Harris responds, Boy, Kamala Harris is first, again, California's first black attorney general and first woman attorney general, all in one. So what does an attorney general really do? One of the things that Kamala Harris talks about the most, and I think is seen as one of the biggest feathers in her cap from her time as attorney general, was around the mortgage meltdown. And essentially, the Obama administration had pulled together a bunch of attorneys general from around the nation with the big banks, and they were trying to come to some settlement around some of the real abuses of the mortgage and banking industry during the 2008-2009 recession. And the Obama administration, who I think it's important to note, Kamala Harris signed on to Obama before any before it was popular. She was in his camp when Hillary Clinton was still the heir apparent in 2000, you know, before 2008. She had a long relationship with him. So I do think it took even more for her to stand up to that administration than it might have for other attorneys general. But she essentially walked away from the table bringing, you know, with her California's almost 40 million residents and ultimately negotiated a, a larger settlement, one that was harsher on the banks um, than what the Obama administration had wanted. And, you know, I think arguably it was really a win for folks across the nation. So I think that's kind of one example of how California can push through its attorney general's office policies that don't just stop here. Our current AG has filed over 100 lawsuits against the Trump administration. I think the majority of them are over environmental regulations, and they have a pretty good track record. So you see that office being used to litigate kind of bigger questions than just things that kind of end at California's borders. And I think that that's 
one of the reasons it has the power and, and then with it comes the bully pulpit, which is obviously powerful in itself. People don't really talk about Attorney General Harris's fight against the big banks, the civil cases to which Marisa Lagos is referring. What they talk about is Harris's record on crime. And Harris's first status in some ways complicated what she could do on the job. When we think about how she reacted to a lot of the efforts for change when she was DA and then attorney general, like you have to think about it within the time and within the context of who she is. It is a harder thing to be a woman of color in law enforcement. It's a harder thing, I think, 20 years ago to be a woman in law enforcement. And maybe in some places it still is. Um, and then to have this background of being half Jamaican, half Indian American, I think of having the communities within that part of her identity expecting more from you and having potentially a lot of police officers and other folks within law enforcement maybe not trusting you as much because they see you as other. I think it's not totally fair to compare where she was 10, 15 years ago to where we are today around these conversations. I think she definitely came out of those experiences with a little bit of a different approach than a lot of people. And I do think that it helped lead her on maybe not as kind of progressive as what some advocates would like to see, but certainly a different take on criminal justice than a lot of people in her position had taken or did, were still taking and are still taking. I mean, the, the district attorneys in California are still overwhelmingly a group of very conservative folks who have opposed nearly all of the reforms that California has embraced. Don't forget why she got into this, though. You know, she talks about it as having watched her parents march for civil rights and coming from this kind of rabble-rouser family, that she really felt like the place that she could do the most good was from inside the system. And she's pretty clear about this, that she felt like the way you kind of rebuild something is by becoming part of it. I think there are people who might disagree with that, but that is how she's always framed it. And I think she truly believes that becoming a politician, becoming a prosecutor, then being elected to Congress was really going to be the way that she could make the biggest changes and push the ball as far as she wanted to. But is it even really possible to be a progressive prosecutor? Back to Tanya Christian. I think oftentimes, again, when we look at progressive prosecutors, that's really a term that's been thrown around more often. It's not necessarily something that we talked about as much 10, 15 years ago. And not only in speaking to Senator Harris, but in speaking to other prosecutors, for instance, Kim Fox in Chicago and Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore, who have said that a part of the reason why they can do what they do is because Senator Harris did what she did in California. And so they are considered progressive prosecutors in 2020, right? But at that time, trying to reform the system was such a huge undertaking. And I don't think that she necessarily had the support that other progressive prosecutors have today. And so she has the reputation of being a top cop, but she says that she really stands by the work that she did in California, and she's proud of the work that she did in California. Kamala Harris began her career in law enforcement in 1990. Very few people were marching to defund the police in 1990. In 2020, it's a different world. Here's Harris herself in 2006, before she even became attorney general. The criminal justice system is not working for the African-American community. 
I can tell you as the chief law enforcement officer for a major city in this country that it is not working. We see that in the statistics that you've outlined. Two million people are in the prison system in this country. Over 40% are African American in spite of the fact that we only constitute 13% of the general population. It's not working. It's not working when we recognize that African American men, the leading cause of their death is homicide. We overly are overly represented both as victims and as defendants and as witnesses. Our communities suffer because our babies hear the gunfire every night, so the seven-year-old has post-traumatic stress disorder and cannot go to school the next day and learn. The criminal justice system is not working for us. What I think we have failed to do as a community, however, is own this issue of law enforcement. We talk about these statistics in the context always of it is unfair, it's morally incorrect. Maybe we have learned that from the church. It is morally incorrect. But nobody cares about that. You can look at Katrina. Nobody cares about the fact that we've got a bunch of young black and brown men in prison. That argument is not working. What I suggest we do as African-Americans is own this issue in law enforcement and then define it in the way that works for us. Because it is a myth to say that African-Americans don't want law enforcement. We do. We want our grandmothers to be able to walk to church and be safe. We want our babies to be able to walk to the park and be safe. What we don't want is racial profiling. What we don't want is excessive force. That's right. What we don't want is to have our civil liberties and civil rights be stripped. But we do want law enforcement. Remember how Marisa Lagos said that the attorney general job is more about civil law than criminal law? Kamala Harris did a lot when she was attorney general, but because of where America is at the moment, it's her record on criminal justice and not her record on consumer protection, the environment, privacy rights, LGBTQ plus rights, or really anything else that we focus on. We'll be back for a look at Senator Kamala Harris after this. There are a lot of people in California, and there aren't a lot of jobs for aspiring politicians. When Kamala Harris became attorney general, her next career moves were basically governor, the Senate, or maybe potentially, possibly vice president. And she might wind up doing two out of three of those jobs. When she was at Howard, Kamala Harris interned for then-Senator Alan Cranston. When Senator Cranston retired in 1992, then-Congresswoman Barbara Boxer ran for his seat. This is Barbara Boxer, and I served so many terms in the Senate, four terms, that's 24 years. Before that, I served five terms in the House of Representatives. That was 10 years. And before that, I served in local government in Marin County, California, for six years as a county supervisor. And I worked as a reporter. I got my education with a degree in economics and political science. And if you've been paying close attention, that's literally the same degree Kamala Harris got. Anyway. I think Senator Harris is younger than I. She still broke barriers, as I did, and she broke them in a different way because as a woman of color, she managed to win these elections in law enforcement, which is very, very, very difficult to break that glass ceiling. And I remember, especially her last race for attorney general was very, very tough. And she, she pulled it off because, as we all can see, she's very strong, she's very smart, and she's also very likable. And that matters. Boxer made a very different jump from Harris, from Congress to the Senate, and watched California change as Kamala Harris became a politician who was awaiting an opportunity like an open Senate seat. 
And can you talk a little bit about the difference between representing a single congressional district in Northern California to representing California as a whole in the, in the Senate? Oh, yes. I mean, it's the difference between washing the dishes and putting them in the dishwasher and cleaning every inch of your whole home. I mean, it's one is so much easier than the other. Not that anything's easy, but in my particular case, my congressional district skewed to the Democrats. So once I got by the primary, which was very difficult, my first slogan, which was Barbara Boxer gives a damn, when I looked back on it, I thought, oh my God, how did I ever get away with that? But times were tough in that year that I was running, 1982, we were in a terrible recession. Ronald Reagan was president, and he wasn't doing much to help folks. You know, the difference is, clearly, in a state like California, the congressional districts are very large. Uh, at that time, they were about 300,000. Now they're probably about 600,000. But when you ran for Senate, that was millions and millions of people. Would probably, um, I'm thinking back when I ran in 92, probably about 20 million people. Now it's about 40 million people. And Kamala ran for my seat when I left, as you know, and I was proud to endorse her. I waited a while because I didn't really want to be a kingmaker slash queenmaker, <laughs> but I, uh, I eventually endorsed Kamala because I felt she was running a very upstanding campaign. I thought it was great. And it's during the debates that we really start to see the Harris we know today. At the time, Harris's opponent was Loretta Sanchez, a blue dog congresswoman. Remember them? There's this amazing moment when they had this debate where Loretta Sanchez like dabbed at the end of it. Remember when dabbing was a thing? <laughs> and like Harris, like this is the thing. We haven't really talked about Kamala as like a person. She's a really funny person. Okay. Like she's, she's, she is the kind of politician that is a reporter when you're covering her, when you get an off the record moment with her, she's likable. She's affable. She is very real. And I think like that moment in the debate when Harris just sort of looked at Loretta Sanchez, like, what are you doing? And the audience was kind of looking at her like, what are you doing was this really personal moment that summed up so much about a just what an unfair fight that felt like. I mean, Harris just like I said, it felt like she kind of ran circles around Sanchez. But it was also just bizarre, like to see how well Harris and I think her consultants kind of locked up that seat. It was, yeah, it was, it was just kind of brutal. And I think it showed a lot from what they had learned from 2010 and the race with Cooley in terms of like how to position her, how to get out of the gate early. And I think there's a lot of people that felt like they might say that the, the, the Democratic Party was sort of bullied into accepting her as the heir apparent. I think on her side, they would say it was just good politics. Harris beat Sanchez and became, for once, second. Senator Carol Mosley Braun was the first black woman to serve in the Senate. Harris was, however, the first South Asian American. I think within the kind of mainstream Democratic Party, she's, she's very well liked in California. And I think that way more so than she actually was when she was in California in elected office here. I think being in the Senate has freed her up in a lot of ways to be more critical, more of that attack dog, to be more lefty, quite frankly. I mean, she's taken more progressive positions than ever before and been really outspoken. And she has the ability to do that as one of 100 senators representing one of the most liberal states in the nation. 
Senator Harris has become particularly well-known for her hearings. Here she is in 2017 grilling then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions on that whole Russia thing. Did you have any communications with Russian officials uh, for any reason during the campaign that have not been disclosed uh, in public or to this committee? Uh, I don't recall it, uh, but I have to tell you, uh, I cannot testify to what was uh, said as we were standing at the Republican convention before the podium where I spoke. My, my just, question is uh, only as I don't it have the detailed memory of that. Okay, as it relates to your knowledge, did you have any communication with any Russian businessmen or any Russian nationals? I don't believe I had any conversation with Russian businessmen or Russian nationals. Are you aware Although of any communication? A lot of people were at the convention. It's conceivable that somebody sir, sir, came I up have to me. Just a few. Well, you let me qualify it. I, if, you, okay. if I don't qualify it, you'll accuse me of lying. So I need to be correct as best I can. I do want you to be honest. And I'm not able to uh, be rushed this fast. It makes me nervous. If you don't have anything to hide, what do you have to be nervous about, right? Throughout her career, Kamala Harris has faced criticism from all sides. And for Tanya Christian, the criticism sometimes obscures the person. There is this notion that she is a Black woman only because she's running for office, that she's not really in touch with the community. And, and I'll just say that with my experience with her, that's not the person that I see. I see a proud Black woman who is very in tune with her community and who is fighting for change and who wants to see change and who wants to see justice. And that's what I've always gotten from her. And I'll even say this, when I was in Iowa on the bus tour, oftentimes the the reporters who follow the candidates around do not look like me. On that bus tour, I think I was maybe one of three Black people. And that's indicative of most reporters who coverage the election. And one day we were outside of, I was sitting outside of a fundraiser because there wasn't enough room for reporters to be inside. And she was walking to the bus. She was swiftly walking to the bus and she saw me and she stopped and she gave me a hug and she said, I'm so glad that you were here. And just having that warmth, People don't get to see that, I don't think, because they're seeing her run for office. They're seeing her being competitive. And so I don't think they get to really see that part of her. And I feel like it's the same person who was in the office when 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 somebody's child was killed and they said they only wanted to speak to Kamala. That warmth that she shows, everyone doesn't get to see. And so that's a little frustrating, but hopefully people are able to see more of it. In just a few weeks, Senator Harris could be on her way to the White House, the first woman to serve as vice president. So, who is Kamala Harris? Who is Kamala Harris? I would say Kamala Harris is a smart lawyer, a talented politician, a very driven person who has really been embraced by the Democratic establishment and is maybe a little further on the left wing of that than some folks, but certainly not on, I, I would say she's not hard on either wing of the party. She's she's kind of a centrist. She came out of San Francisco, so she's definitely got some of that coloring her, but she also has this law enforcement side of her. And I think that she is in some ways emblematic of who I expect to see 
kind of being the future of the Democratic Party, at least at the national level. She is younger than a lot of the people in office. She is a person of color. I mean, she's not your kind of stoic, stoic Diane Feinstein character that we might have seen emerge 20, 25 years ago. I think Kamala Harris is the proud daughter of two immigrant parents, a mother who was disciplined, who raised her to be anything that she wanted to be, who told her that it's not enough for you to be great. You have to make sure that there are people who come behind you who are able to do what you do. So you have to help others as you climb. She is a proud stepmother, a very loving wife, and she is a servant for the people. She's a very bright, caring person, and she wants to make life better for people. I think she showed how strong she is, but yet how human she is. I think she's terrific on this ticket, and she's breaking barriers. And every little girl, whatever the color of their skin knows, this is possible. It's exciting. Next time on Who Is, the last episode of the season and the last episode before that election everyone's all riled up over. We'll be looking at the mechanism that enables candidates to lose the popular vote but get elected president anyway. It's the Electoral College, which is not a person, next week on Who Is. A sincere thank you to our guests, Senator Barbara Boxer, who represented California in the Senate for nearly 25 years, Tanya Christian, a New York City-based journalist covering news and politics, and Marisa Lagos, political correspondent at KQED in San Francisco. Lagos is co-host of Political Breakdown. Check it out. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, writer and senior producer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Editing and mixing by Will Standen. Production support from Pedro Elvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. At Now This, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Who is the podcast season two? New episodes out every Tuesday ending next Tuesday. And listen up, season three is happening, and we'll be back in 2021. And there's more. Now this has podcasts, podcasts, podcasts. There is so much going on in the world, but for parents, it's hard to know how to explain the issues happening. Enter the Now This Kids podcast. Co-hosted by youth activist Naomi Wadler, Now This Kids unpacks the news in ways your whole family can use and focuses on the changemakers who are doing the work and making an impact, from fighting hunger to providing education for refugees. The news can be a lot for anyone to wrap their heads around, and it's difficult to see the good that's happening. But the first step in making change is understanding. Now This Kids answers questions like, why does inequality exist? How will climate change affect my future? And what does it mean to fight for LGBTQ plus rights? With headlines, explainers, and explorations of uplifting stories that inspire and inform, each episode sparks conversations and provides ways families can take action together. Listen to new episodes of Now This Kids every Wednesday on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.